0: Hello enthusiasts! Welcome to Wine in the Bottle. I'm your host Sarah and this is the wine podcast for enthusiasts of all levels. And I like to take you off the page of the textbook into the greater world of wine. What do I have in my glass today is the question. This is a champagne. A true champagne from Champagne France. In fact it's a Piper Heidzik, and Piper Heidzik is one of the oldest Champagne houses in Rheims, France. And I'm sure that I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's... maybe it's Reims. I'm not sure. But Piper Heidzik dates all the way back to 1786, I believe. And it was founded by a German man named Heidzik, who fell in love with the Champagne region. decided to create something beautiful. Champagne. Now he was not the first person to make champagne that is credited to Dom Perignon. Well, whether or not that is actually true is debatable, but Dom Perignon famously said, come quick, I am tasting the stars, when he discovered champagne. So what makes champagne so unique and so special, and what does it really mean? Well, that's a great question because I think to most people champagne is ubiquitous for any bubbly wine, but that's not at all correct. Champagne is its own unique element, its own production style, and it comes from a specific place. In fact, any sparkling wine labeled champagne has to come from Champagne France. Otherwise, it's not really Champagne. So what makes this glass unique? It's biscuity and bready with a little bit of mushroom and hay. It's definitely been on the lees for a while, which means that it has sat on the yeast cells in the bottle for an extended period of time. For standard Champagne, the restriction is that it must age on the lees, on the East, for at least 12 months. If it has a vintage stamp on it, on the bottle, if it specifically says it comes from a certain year, it has to be on the lees for at least three years. Sometimes can be aged for a decade or more. This particular wine is the Prohibition Edition, and I'll bring the bottle back up again. So this is the Piper Heidsieck bottle. It's a brute, and it is their Prohibition Edition, so it was um, in celebration of the repeal of Prohibition. So this wine was definitely aged for a while, but I still get these beautiful primary characteristics from it as well. There's yellow peach and apple, honeysuckle. Not quite as much citrus. I do get a little bit of lemon, but it's uh, stone fruit, green fruit and floral. So if we take a taste here, has really soft bubbles and that could be because it's not really chilled at this point. It's been in my glass for a little bit. Um, When I first poured it, it foamed up beautifully. It had this gorgeous mousse that just bubbled over. Um, On the palette, it's kind of got some weight to it. There's definitely a roundness and a heavy, not full body, but definitely on the heavier side of medium. It is a little tangy on the palate, more lemony, a little yogurty, Um, and there is a bit of minerality in here as well. Nice bright acid to counteract that little bit of residual sugar. It's making my mouth water a lot, and the finish goes on for miles, so I'm sitting here explaining it to you, and I can still taste the wine. Fantastic. Great cup. So, what are the restrictions that make this a champagne? First of all, it has to come from Champagne France. And then, in the vineyard, there are restrictions just on grape growing. So, I'm gonna go to my script now. So there are only seven grape varieties that are approved for use in a champagne. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Meunier are the three most common. And then you could also use Petit Melier, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Arban. And those last two were recently added. So you get seven choices to put into your wine. Then the grape varieties that are chosen are suited to a cool climate because it is very cold in Champagne. Even during the summers, it really doesn't get that warm. And it's a continental climate. So the summers and the winters have a large range of temperatures and it's not very consistent. So frost is a huge problem. In fact, in 2021, the harvest was severely affected by frosts in the early part of the growing season. So in, I believe it was March and April, there was an extended period of frost several days and that damages the vines and prevents good growth basically. So the crop was reduced. Other things to know about the Champagne region is that it has chalky limestone soil. So the drainage is, works really well. There's a lot of rain in the winter time, and that rain just drains right through the limestone and forms a reservoir underneath, which can help later in the year if there is no rain later in the year or in times of drought where there might not have been enough rain over the winter there's still water in the underground reservoirs. So, that's a unique aspect to Champagne. And I think terroir has a a lot to do with what makes Champagne special. Because this style of wine is made all across the world. And we'll get more into the style in a moment. But the chalky limestone gives it a zing, a minerality that you don't find in warmer climate. Um, or more fertile soil-based mines. So what happens in the vineyard is that everything has to be done by hand in Champagne. No mechanisms can be used. It cannot be mechanized at all. It's all done by hand, and it's regulated. So in good years, where there is a lot of rain, the yields have to be controlled because there is a cap. Put on by the regulatory authority. So the farmers have to go in and select the inflorescences or um, the great bunches before they've formed berries. They have to choose the best ones and call the rest because they can only produce a certain amount per hectare or per acre. But the restrictions don't end in the vineyard. Once you get to the winery, You have to follow some specific rules and regulations in order to create traditional method champagne, and all champagne is traditional method. So first of all, you make a base still wine from one of the seven grape varieties. The still wine then gets bottled and you put in a liqueur de tirage which is sugar mixed with wine and yeast. And what that does is you put it in the bottle and you cap the bottle and it goes through a secondary fermentation in the bottle that it will be sold in. And that, that is a regulation as well. It has to be secondary fermented in the bottle in which it will be sold. So in that bottle, the yeasts eat the extra sugar and they eventually will die. And the cells, this is kind of gross, the cells will settle to the bottom of the bottle and then it has to sit there. Champagne does not go through a filtration process like some still wines do, most still wines. Instead, to get rid of the sediment, it is racked and riddled. So you take the bottle, you put it in a rack, and you start out horizontal and then every so often, depends on the producer, you go in and turn the bottle ever so slightly so now it's at a slight angle and it's also been rotated. And the best champagne houses do this by hand. It's a very slow, very tedious process. Some champagne houses will use what they call a gyro palette and it is mechanized. And it will do that same thing, just on a more consistent level. So, once you have rotated the bottle to the point where it is now vertical, you disgorge and get rid of all that sediment. So you freeze the neck of the bottle, open up the cap, and the pressure from inside the bottle, because that secondary fermentation has produced carbon dioxide, which has mixed in with the solution of the wine, and that's how you get those beautiful bubbles. It's carbon dioxide. So the pressure pushes on the ice in the neck of the bottle, which has trapped all the sediment inside and pops it right out. Then you top off the bottle with a solution of wine and sugar, which depending on what style of wine you're making, what style of champagne, Uh, You could put more sugar, or less sugar, or none at all, if you're okay with the sweetness as it is. That's called dosage. And uh, this new wine, or the same wine that you had, in the same bottle gets corked and sent off for sale. And that is traditional method. And traditional method is made throughout the world, but it can't be called champagne. It has to be called sparkling wine. And in Germany it's called Zecht. in South Africa it is um, Cap Classique, and here in the United States it's traditional method. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as method traditional in French. So there's a little bit of backstory about what makes Champagne special and how there are multitudes of sparkling wines throughout the world that you can try that are still made exactly the same as Champagne, but from a different region. So if you hear the term sparkling wine, don't shy away from it. And now I think I'll cut to an interview with Paula Cornell of Cornell Sparkling Wines here in the Napa Valley and see what she has to say about Champagne and California sparkling. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I always like to give my guests the opportunity to introduce themselves because you know better than anyone what your passions are. So, what's your elevator pitch?
1: What is my elevator pitch? That's a good one. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, I guess it would be um, Paulo Cornell, fourth generation sparkling wine producer. Um, my great grandparents and grandparents all made sect in Germany, and then my father here, and I'm just re in a different way taking the tradition and redefining it. So. It's really wonderful. I love that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks. Um, so I, this whole episode is about champagne, but you mentioned sect. And so I would love to bring up what the differences are. Because I know a lot of people who, in the general population, think champagne is synonymous with all sparkling wine. And it is certainly not. It is
1: a very niche
0: category. So champagne versus sect,
1: what's the difference? Sect is German champagne only it's made in German <laughs> and there's like sparkling wine, like uh, Prosecco, there's many different ways of producing it, but most German sect is made in the method Champenois, which is the traditional Champagne, which means that it's made in the bottle that you're, you're getting yeah. with no, all, um, all um, naturally fermented and not um, processed in any other way. Yeah. So if you were to set down a
0: bottle of your sparkling wine from California, mm-hmm. a bottle from champagne, and a bottle from Germany that's in the style of sect, would you be able to tell the difference?
1: That is a very good question. I probably would. Um, probably would just because to me, champagne is definitely has a very specific um, taste to it. Um, maybe not taste is the right word, but there's definitely a flavor that I think is, that goes goes through all champagnes. Um, it's a little bit more yeasty than we can ever uh, produce here. Um, German sect. I, I honestly, I have not in, this, in the most recent years had any. So to be able to sit down and say what the similarities would be as far as taste, because they're using now pretty much the exact same grapes. Yes, there are some that are made in it, with Riesling and other dry whites, mm-hmm. but they too are doing more Chardonnay and Pinot Noir also. But my father had a sparkling that was called Zertrunken that he did in the very German style because it was 100% Riesling, but it was bone bone dry, so you would never have known that it was Riesling.
0: Wow. So
1: I think that that <laughs> I think that even today that would surprise most of us. Um, in Germany, how dry some of those wines are.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of German wine
1: is is associated with sweetness. Absolutely, yeah. which is really sad. It's, it's sad <laughs> yeah. that we just just automatically feel that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people are missing the boat when we're not drinking as much. We're not drinking great Rieslings, Pinot Blanc, um, Gewurztraminers. We're we're. We are thinking constantly that they can only be with Asian food or that they can, that they're going to be sweet and by far they're not and they go with, like bubbles, they go with everything.
0: So, hi. So if you had to make an unconventional pairing with sparkling wine and something totally off the rails that no one would expect, what would you pair it
1: with? Oh, last night we had it with a beautiful filet of beef with horseradish and we had some the Blanc de Noir that we've got a mimosa drinking now, but <laughs> yes, I mean, there's enough acidity, and enough backbone that um, it goes with a lot of different things. And it's just like German wines, you, people think that, oh, sparkling, you can only drink with dessert or, and no, it goes with so many different, so many. And it's really about the style. No, you don't want to be drinking a French extra dry, which is fairly sweet. Mm-hmm. But if you have something that's got some backbone and age to it, it definitely goes with a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. My father was funny because he had, growing up, we had a bubble called bubbles called Rouge, and it was a hundred percent Gamay. Mm-hmm. And it was delicious on the dry side. So when I would do winemaker dinners, even back then, people were feeling much. The, most people felt much more comfortable when they were drinking something that was red, that was bubbles. Ah. the That uh, dryness or sweetness was still there, but um, they felt I could just see that people felt more comfortable because it was red. Because it was red. Yeah. That's so
0: interesting.
1: It's <laughs> in our minds, the things we do. mm
0: mm-hmm. So. I wanted to ask your. I, I went to your talk at the Art of Champagne screening, and what stuck out to me was that idea that champagne is so well known. I'm My new best friend. Um, champagne is so so well known, so ubiquitous. But if California sparkling could be called anything other than that to sort of bolster its reputation. Um, it could be. And do you do you feel that way with other regions in the world as well, like German sect and um, Italian cava or prosecco? I
1: think I I think that all those countries have all the different countries have a much more sexy name for their wine. I do think it's hard for the consumer. Prosecco you can't say that all Prosecco is method champagne by any means. Yeah. So I think it's difficult no matter what nomenclature you're using. I just hate the thing with sparkling wine. <laughs> to me it sounds really cheap and it doesn't sound good. Yeah. Um, and yet, in all respect of, of champagne, I certainly don't want to be calling it champagne. I get tired of trying to explain method champenois, which that's my job, is to explain method champenois. And then everyone since then, and ever since that night, I say that a lot. God, we have to come up with something <laughs> much nicer. And they'll go, well, why don't you have that on? Yeah, sure. My free time, i going to do right. that. It just seems that um, it's hard for the consumer to know what is traditional champagne traditional champagne um, Mm -hmm. style or it's something that's been pumped with co2 Mm -hmm. and even with pricing it's hard to explain too because you have all those proseccos coming into the market that you can buy from anywhere from uh, from six dollars to twenty five dollars and my brut goes anywhere from fifteen dollars to twenty five dollars and here that's method champagne so it's hard to even put a price on it um, so I don't know I always tell everybody to look for method raw or traditional method on the bottle On the bottle, but yeah we need to come up with it so any ideas people have I think we need a better name <laughs> it seems like lately I've been saying I'm in the bubble business yeah. versus um, versus in the sparkling wine business just because again I just think that's but bubbles yeah. could be just about anything. It could be bubble bath, it could be... <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh that's okay, as long as it's got bubbles in it. <laughs> I
0: love that. Um, do you have a preferred method of more like the house method or the vintage method of sparkling wine?
1: I think both. I mean, tr- truly it's both. For me, um, um, for my, uh, for my brand, it's important that I have something that is truly uh, has my heart and soul, which is the Blanc de Noir and uh, my Blanc de Blanc that's still on the yeast. Mm-hmm. So, those are vintage wines and they're all Napa Valley. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> for my brand, as we go on, everything from Napa Valley is vintage, and meaning that it's also aging longer on the yeast. Yeah. Where the Brut, is a year and a half on the East, and it but it's a California Appellated, but it definitely fits the needs for um, a, bubbles that can you can been enjoying every single day, and that you which you should be. I mean, to me, I don't care if you're drinking the brut or the or, or if you're not drinking mine, but drinking, I think, bubbles is a really enlightenment for each day.
0: As Dom Perignon supposedly said, yeah. i tasting the stars. Absolutely, abs- <laughs> absolutely. You know,
1: and I never, I mean, here we have a mimosa in front of us. Mm-hmm. I truly disliked mimosas terribly because I think most of it, what we've all had, especially if you go out, is the least expensive bubbles that, and usually it's not method champagne. And bad orange juice. Yeah. But if you get great orange juice and great bubbles, it really uh, makes a whole elevated, ex- <laughs> elevated experience. So now, my God, I kind of like this. Just know <laughs> I don't do that every day.
0: <laughs> That's the wine business. Yeah. Period. Oh yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, uh, it's funny. I my day job is uh, that I'm sales and concierge. So I tell my guests all the time, you gotta when you're in Napa, it's okay to start early.
1: I do like when people are visiting here, and um, I do not have a tasting room, so everything is here at the house. And just as you see, <laughs> part of it is being entertained by these creatures, oh. or you, inter- or the guests entertaining my dogs. <laughs> Um, but I do like to catch people in the morning because I think it's more, it's fun to start your day out with some bubbles and um, it's obviously good to finish your day off too, but I like them before they hit every Cabernet producer yeah, <laughs> in the right. valley. And
0: they come to you after <laughs> yeah. several glasses of yeah, 15% wine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think makes the Champagne
1: region so unique? The heart and soul. Definitely the people, the the people, the history, um, the legacy that has taken place. Um, like what we heard in that movie was the strong influence of, of very strong women yes. um, that have made that business so, um, have carried on for so long. Um, I think, and they've mastered their trade. I mean, that's it's an incredible trade, I think other parts of the world including the United States we we all make good bubbles but i think it can conti- we can continue to do better and i think we are doing better too uh, mm-hmm. yeah they're jokesters uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, i think it's to me it's a lot of the tra- tradition tradition is really been part of it and their legacy of vineyards they do so much sourcing of i mean one I believe it's Krug that has I can't even believe how many different vineyard sites that they're mm-hmm. sourcing from to make their wine, where then there's others that are getting their grapes from one from one vineyard in particular. Mm-hmm. So it's all over the board, but the stylistically it's just different from what we're doing. Yeah. Definitely, absolutely.
0: Um, I think terroir factors in pretty strongly as well, and I know that you know there's debate on whether or not terroir is is functional in a glass of wine. I think it is. Um, because of everything that goes into growing that berry that goes into your bottle, it's really it, all of the factors are important. So the the chalky soils of champagne versus our 33 different soil subsets.
1: Absolutely, absolutely and to me the last time I was there was uh, just before COVID and to be there in the middle of February with snow on the ground and it being truly a winter wonderland, which we don't get, we don't get here. I'll turn this off sorry. so my psychiatry is definitely making jam. So it is cracks me up where I'll open the door some mornings and there's boxes of fruit out there. And it oh god bless it, I better do something with it. So I I love I love it. I love being able to do
0: that, so. That's awesome, my grandmother used to make jam all the time, but she's got really bad arthritis now, so it makes the stirring hard. Yeah, (laughs) it's hard.
1: (laughs) So please help yourself.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much. So, um, what's your take on caviar and champagne?
1: I love it. Yeah? I love it, and matter of fact, I'm doing um, in the middle of uh, launching a high-low program, that is um, um, high being a caviar with Polanco caviar, which is a family uh, caviar producer in Ur- Uruguay. Oh, wow. And um, so I'm doing, that's the high and the low is fried chicken. Oh, we'll So love it. I've partnered with <laughs> Dave Cruz, who, um, started with not he did not start with but he was with Thomas Keller in the uh, inception of Ad Hoc and so started that whole fried chicken craze there so <laughs> we're just now starting this that really it's back to bubbles go with everything and you can have a beautiful classic setup of caviar but you can also have a great omelet with caviar on top or um, I mean. You don't have to have anything with just caviar. <laughs> just <a little> caviar. <laughs> caviar and fried skin. chicken goes with the salt and the um, um, the fat content of it just is perfect with the acidity of both Brut and Blanc de of any bubbles. It just really goes well. So it's not a new combination by any means, but it's something that. But I think that um, saltiness of caviar, and it's back really fried chicken too, the saltiness of both of them, it just, the, the acidity and the yeast just sort of eats through with all of that and it's luscious. I love that.
0: <laughs> I'm a big fan of, of fried chicken and wine with fried chicken. I had a ghost Block Sauvignon Blanc that I paired with ad hoc fried chicken and I thought it was the most amazing thing mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: It does, it really... Um, it's really excellent. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. really, it really works out well. So, but yeah, I think, um, I think, I think caviar and caviar also, to me, it reminds me of learning about when I was working for Robert Madavi we would do, it was the era of lots of cigar smokers. Yeah. And I would go into Dunhill and I was so clueless about ordering cigars because I'd have to order quite a bit Mm -hmm. and I thought I knew I liked a particular cigar. What did I know? I'm not a cigar smoker. (laughs) So, uh, sitting down with Juan Diego from Polanco Caviar, I thought I knew something. Forget it. I knew nothing. I mean, just the whole breadth of knowing about how caviar is produced, nomenclature of names that we think we is a type of caviar meanwhile just a marketing group so it's really it was it's fascinating there's so much to know
0: it's just as nuanced as champagne itself
1: exactly So what our job is now to make it all much easier so (laughs) people can enjoy it
0: absolutely so with aging champagne there's all the different styles in between mm-hmm. minimum 12 months on the leaves sometimes up to five years do you feel like the different aging categories go well with different occasions or different food parents that's a very
1: good question <laughs> Hmm. let me think about this one okay um <laughs> personally the older and yeastier a wine is for me i enjoy just consuming, drinking it and enjoying it. Um, The things that are a little bit heavier as well as those that are lighter weight I love having with so the lighter weight yes can be drank by itself but it's also great with fruit or with um, I mean here I since I have chickens I do a lot of deviled eggs Mm. Um, so it can go basically with everything but I really enjoy the older, yeastier wines to drink by themselves just because it's, I'm savoring it. I'm, tr- I'm truly savoring it. However, they do like what I was talking about beef. They also would go great because they can stand on their own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's a little, it's over. My answer is also toothpaste because <laughs> I want to be selfish and enjoy it in one way, and then in the other, it's, uh, I think it goes well with everything.
0: Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, bubbles really do go well with everything. They're an everyday kind of drink, I and mean, I found myself even in the last couple of years sort of migrating towards the celebration bottles are more those like aged reds that I've had in the cellar forever instead of the bubbles, which have become more of the like everyday, normal occasion, drink with everything kind of wines. And I, I think that that's kind of an overarching consensus throughout the wine mm-hmm. community. Just kind of a nice
1: migration. And now we're so lucky in the United States to have um, so many great grower champagnes coming in mm-hmm. and that's why it was hard um, for the Napa Valley for the Blanc de Noir. I knew it had to stay in that 50 60 dollars range because for me also why would I drink California Sparkling, even though I love that, but when I have some other great choices of, I just would like people to be open-minded with the French that they do drink, Mm -hmm. as well as the California, that just because, um, something seems sexy on the outside and has great marketing that, try other things too, um, because there's lots of brands out there that uh, we all see, we all seemingly love the packaging, but there's some there's other ones that are.
0: hmm Delicious. Um, makes me think of those new commercials for Snoop Dogg's champagne.
1: Oh yeah, we well, uh, got every rapper <laughs> doing a <bubble> now.
0: <laughs> Lady Gaga is partnering with, Don, with Dom yeah, Perignon, and yeah. it's just it's obviously it's marketing boy but it's also kind of an endorsement because that person is putting their name on that brand. So if you could pick any celebrity from any field, who would you
1: want to be your frontman? You know, for me personally, that was a question that was asked that night. My last question, the last question of the evening, I'll never forget that, was who, living living or dead, what would you choose? And I and I did not answer quick enough. And <laughs> I would have to say, since I love the classics, it would be someone like Jackie Kennedy, or it yeah. would be somebody like um, um, Audrey Hepburn, or something in that um, um, Princess Grace, or somebody like that that would be female. But also, in this day and age, it would be I'd love to have somebody that's really a strong individual out there. Yeah. Uh, it does crack me up. That when you look at the numbers for tequila. What has mm-hmm. happened since every tequila? There's so many tequila brands out there that have a either a musician or actor or someone behind them. It's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. It really
0: is, and it's it's something that I think can be helpful and harmful at the same time because so many people will associate that person with that product, it sort of wipes the board for all of the other products out there, all of the other smaller producers who are still producing quality product, and it's just not getting out because there's this face. <laughs> well,
1: and it's, it, it is, it's difficult. Um, I did this summer a, a tasting for Jameson Rescue, and Christy Brinkley was there with her um, vegan Prosecco. And I found it it was lovely, but I found it really odd that that was the marketing. Her marketing was that it was vegan when, of course, it's vegan.
0: yeah,
1: so it it just showed it had nothing to do with the quality of the wine which was there, and it was lovely. She's beautiful and a great spokesperson for her brand. But to me, I just found that an an interesting marketing choice on Mm -hmm. her part that that was going to be, that was vegan when all of our bubbles are vegan.
0: And I think that just goes to show that some people don't know the process of wine processes and some wines are filtered and fined Mm -hmm. and that might include egg whites or gelatin or milk. So maybe those wines are not technically vegan, even though you're not consuming any animal product. But bubbles are filtered differently, not really filtered at all. It's just the disgorgement process. Right. So there is absolutely no filtering and finding involved. So of course, naturally, they're vegan. <laughs> but a lot of people don't
1: know about that. Are, and, and it's funny you, as you say that, because I'm constantly sitting around this table. I will be done a whole tasting. And then I'll, someone will ask me a question. I'll say, do you know how bubbles are made? And it's because it's back to cigars or caviar we don't know so that's why I'm always please you know can I explain to you how <laughs> champagne or sparkling wine is made and then the light bulb goes off in people's eyes and now I get it now I understand which I think we just take it for granted that we, that I take it for granted that everybody assumes that they know (laughs) how champagne is made. I grew up, and out as you being a birder. I grew up with peacocks because they killed rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. And living on the eastern side of the valley, where it's more arid, there were quite a few more. So I have peacocks here. I don't think they know what a rattlesnake looks like. They wouldn't have a clue. They yeah, not, not a shelter. Not exactly. And they would exactly. not have any idea.
0: <laughs> Hi. Oh God. Yeah. So it's just it's one of those things that I find really interesting is how many different styles of wine there are. Even when you break it down into red, white, bubbles, and then break it down even further from there. So. It's how often do you
1: hear? I don't like Chardonnay
0: all the time, but there's so many different styles of chardonnay. So then all
1: of a sudden you put the Chardonnay in front of someone that is not a butter bomb, that's not over oaked, that is got great fruit and great depth to it, um, then all of a sudden, oh, I like that. So sparkling is very similar to the, it's, you know, someone will say to me, well, what Joe Blow had some other brand. Well, of course it. It's just like I drink... Numerous different cabernets. Um, yeah. Of course, you're gonna. We, I don't. You'd be sick and tired of drinking the same thing, for all of us. Sick and tired of drinking the same thing all the time. I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, when my family's winery closed in '92, I went from um, working with my father in Bubbles to Joseph Phelps, to be um, uh, VP in marketing for a couple of years. Then went on to Mondavi and then have ran quite a few other wineries and then started a consulting business about 15 years ago. And I've just been lucky to work with so many great winemakers as well as great brands and I'm lucky to be able to pull those out and have multiple vintages of things that, (laughs) and to be with good friends um, that are here in the valley that I always I think when you drink a bottle of wine, oftentimes people drink that in a different country and they order the wine here and they goes, it's not the same. Well, it's not the same because it was the whole experience that you had. And for me, it's I love drinking friends' wines because it makes me happy that it was there they produced it and their <laughs> heart and soul went into it. So. Um, I love uh, so I love California. Um, I love Rhone blends, so I love things from both north and southern Rhone. So I gravitate towards those okay. oftentimes, um, and then still drink lots of bubbles. So if I can <laughs> drink, you know. If somebody brings in a good bottle of bubbles, I'm always happy yeah. and happy to learn about different areas. I had lunch in September with a friend of mine, and she brought wines, let me see, we had a South African Bubbles, we had a Croatian Bubbles, we had a Russian Bubbles, I mean, it was so much fun to taste some of these wines, that I would never have the opportunity to taste from yeah. these different countries, and they all have their own nuances.
0: Definitely. So, which type of tasting do you prefer more? Do you prefer regional side-by-side or a vintage side-by-side? Oh my goodness
1: great question. (laughs) Um, I would, well both, for different matters. Both, I think trying a vertical of wines is always incredible to see how something has aged over a period of time or how vintages have been so different as as is the terroir and soil. But then also to be able to taste wines that that are fairly much fairly the same, as far as the um, the percentage of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, the location, but to see what the winemaker style is as well as the, where um, where the grapes are grown. But here, if you put most Napa Valley bubbles together. Uh, you're going to see quite a bit of difference even though so many of us are getting fruit from Carneros. Mm -hmm. And we're getting it from different areas in Carneros, but really it's the style that the winemaker is putting on it, just like a chef. You give four chefs the same uh, recipe is all going to turn out differently. This is the Blanc
0: de Noir. Correct. So, what can you tell me about your uh, process for this specific wine?
1: Sure. So, um, the brand right now has two wines the Brut California and the uh, Napa Valley or Carneros Blanc de Noir. This was the first wine for me to release, and it definitely is my baby. Oh. Um, it comes from a great vineyard called Mitsuko's, and Mitsuko was married to Jan Schramm from Clobagas. She was also a good friend of my mother's, so to go full circle, which is kind of cool. Um, she was given this vineyard by her husband for Valentine's Day, and gave her, he gave her a Tiffany's blue box with dirt in it. And the note said, for the 365 days of the year that I love you. And he gave her 365 acres in Carneros.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> and for me,
1: uh, working for Mondavi all those years and doing events in vineyards surrounding this property, I never knew there was a piece of land that was 365 acres right in the middle of Carneros. Wow. So I'm honored to be able to have a few blocks there of both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So this, um, excuse me, this gets picked usually the third week of August, and uh, the grapes all go into the winery. Chardonnay goes through 100% malolactic, Pinots in French oak. And then Robin, my winemaker, and I usually put the blend together around now. Usually it's just after Thanksgiving that we'll start working on it. And then it gets put in the bottle, and it's aged for three years on the knees. Just a little bit shy of three years, but three years, as long as we can possibly keep it that way. Um, And we're just truly going for some elegance, some... um, some nice weight to it, and that's why the Chardonnay goes through mallow because, in lieu of being able to age it for as long as we really would love to age it, <laughs> um, it's that that really is what happens. Uh, we have a blanc de blanc on the yeast right now from the same vineyard, which is 100% Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and that will not be released until. It'll be degorged in 24. um, And I'm going to be showcasing that at this year's Premier Napa Valley. Uh, The first in it, this is the 19 Blanc de Noir, the 18 I had for, uh, for Premier Napa Valley a few years ago. And I used old Hans Cornell Blanc de Noir, I think it was 86 Blanc de Noir, as the dosage. Oh So it was called something old, something new, and the blanc de blanc will. Um, it's from we've decided that this particular uh, five cases is from one one piece of the block, and I'm naming it after my mother because Chardonnay in Carneros as well in Champagne it's the queen, and we used to call my mother Queenie. So it is in, <laughs> in honor of her we're doing we're doing that. So sweet. Yeah, she was a she was a character. So,
0: mm. was your mother involved with the winemaking at your
1: father's winery? She was the backbone of that winery, so she was definitely the the power behind the throne, <laughs> as you would say. But they worked um, very they worked very very well together, and she definitely was his sounding board and, and did. Um, all the entertaining. I mean, there's great stories of how you know he—you'd be coming to the winery at four or five o'clock, and he liked you, and it'd be oh, Mary Louise, oh, honey, I've got friends I'm bringing home for dinner—in his fabulous German accent. Um, so now he used, used to always say, "Oh God, no," but it never came out. Oh God, no. It was always "Oh Gott, no." So I, to this day, every time I do something that has to do. Especially with the brand, I think, he is rolling over in his grave going, Oh, God, no, honey, what are you doing? (laughs) So, yeah, it was a great way to grow. It was a great way. Absolutely. And what's fun is that both, the wines definitely have been, I don't think I started out that way, but it's basically been an homage to, to my parents.
0: It just kind of developed into that. It
1: really it really did. Yeah. It started actually with Michael Vanderbyl, who designed the label. He asked why um, I wasn't using these men. Oh. And because that was on my uh, family, his, my father's family in Germany. John Konesgaard has it on his label. I believe it was Trefethen had it for their second label for years. And the very weekend that Michael Vanderbilt had said, why aren't we using that? I was going through an old... Uh, some old Hans Cornell newsletters and in there it described what the meaning was and in the in the Bible the men are sent over the mountain to make sure the land is fertile on the other side. Mm -hmm. And as the story comes back they come back with these huge clusters of grapes and big size fruit. Well in this newsletter it said Hans feels that Napa Valley in California is his land of plenty. And with that I went It's going on my label. (laughs) I don't have a choice. This is just... So I'm really glad that... um, I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. It means a lot. It means a lot with that. Ties it in a little bit more.
0: That's really sweet. I love how much history is in this valley alone, even though, you know, in France, they've been making wine for 2,000 years. And here, we're just getting started. With Timeline-wise, I mean, we've been... Making wine realistically since the 1860s, but not to the standard that we make it today. And we're still getting getting started.
1: Yeah, there's it's there's so much history, and it's um, we either don't take time to learn it or we take it for granted. And it's and it's great that there's still. I had a group here not long ago that um, that said they were asking a million questions about things, and so they said, can you please tell us about the saga of the Mondavis? And I went, well, sure. So I start telling them about Robert Mandavi and Peter Mandavi, and then it's time for their their driver to be here. And just as they're getting on the bus, Pete Mandabi drives in, and I said, Pete, I just told these people about the saga of your family. And he said, did they spend the night? <laughs> so just the fact that so many of us, there's so many of us that are still around and still making making wine and still loving what we do. And there's many generations here um, in Napa Valley as well as Sonoma. and just it's great that we are following that European tradition.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we start to wrap up towards the end of our our session here, um, what are some things that you would like the viewers to know
1: about where to get your wine well there's uh, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I'm very lucky that here in Napa Valley I have so many great supporters of restaurants that a have been Don Giovanni and gel mustards that have been supporters from the very beginning and I so appreciate that and retail wise um, Gary's here in San Alina, Sunshine Foods, Cellar Collections in Napa, um, but there's many, there's many more. Uh, the Brut is probably more available than the Blanc de Noir, and people can also find it on my website too. So, and the website's great because it has a lot of history. History. So I'm old. So there's a lot of history. <laughs>
0: Good. So visit the website. Um. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again for hosting me here at your beautiful home.
1: My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for coming. (laughs) Cheers.
0: Gosh, I had such a great time visiting with Paula and her puppy dogs. It was a great conversation and thank you so much for joining me. And I think I'll finish off this glass of Piper Heidsick, but before I do, If you are interested in expanding your palette the way that I did when I was studying for the W set, check out Vinebox in the link in the description. Disclaimer, I do get a kickback if you happen to purchase through my link, but Vinebox is a great product where you can try sample sized vials of wine from all over the world in many different styles without having to commit to purchasing a full bottle. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And of course, like, subscribe, drop in the comments what your favorite champagne house is, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.